Hello and welcome to the Nomi Ki Show. I am Nomi Ki Konst. From time to time, history presents us with a clarifying moment. What was debated is suddenly inarguable. The scales fall from our eyes and everyone sees what before some of us said, but others could not hear or accept. Wednesday's murderous assault on our Capitol is such a moment. The Trump movement was revealed for what it was, for what it is, a mob of white supremacists egged on by the lies of a narcissist who cares only about the applause they give him and the online platforms and the hosts and politicians who monetize off of him. In this moment, it is not enough to condemn the sacking of our country's most important building. We must, each of us, draw a line against the system that created this. We need to draw a clear line in solidarity and declare enough, no more, and to pull everyone we can to our side now, while the wounds are, are fresh and the danger of inaction is palpable, while folks see what is clearly unacceptable. It is on us, pro- progressives in particular, and, and particularly white progressives, to state clearly what just happened. This was more than the malignancy of Donald Trump, although God knows he is a cancer of the presidency, to borrow a phrase from Watergate. No, this is way bigger than Donald Trump. This is about America's toxic blend of systemic racism and capitalist exploitation, the manifestation of our country's original sin. Together, they created the white supremacists who stormed the Capitol, murdered a police officer, and left four of their own dead, too. Some of my friends and colleagues on the left have been saying that the seething mob was ultimately all about economic unfairness, that we just needed that $2,000 stimulus and a better economy, and this will heal. No, 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 no. That misses the lesson of American history. Racism is so intertwined with our unfair economic system that we cannot repair one without healing both. You cannot band-aid 300 years of systemic racism with a stimulus check. Racism isn't just our original sin. It is the wedge that exploiters have used for two centuries to divide working people by the color of their skin in our country. Those insurrectionists with their Confederate flags and don't tread on me banners, they were playing out one of America's original racist tropes. It is the one that has been used all through our history to divide us when we should have been uniting. Elon Musk is the world's richest man today after a record year of his profits during COVID as everyone suffers while the rest of America, white and black, got screwed, got sick, died, was not protected. Yet this this crew took their battle flags to Capitol Hill to make one last stand. We can't leave it on the shoulders of our black sisters and brothers anymore to call this crap out. And I'm going to say it. We have to do it to speak out in ways that some white folks may only hear from us beyond showing up at demonstrations or hashtags. And if that means calling up or even calling out white allies or potential allies, then so be it. We all know that there is no negotiating with terrorists. Well, these are our domestic terrorists, and, and they need to be cut out like a cancer. Politicians 
of both sides need to reject their votes. Neoliberals need to abandon fiscal policies that enable racist economic systems and tech companies must stop enabling incitement and hatred, blinded by the hate-driven profits, enough. And popular podcast hosts on Spotify must stop platforming Alex Jones and Gavin McGinnis, the leader of Proud Boys. And Spotify, a publicly traded company, needs to stop rewarding folks who open the doors to folks who incite hate. There is no fair and balanced when you give Nazis a larger audience. We have a movement that needs to stand in solidarity. Solidarity. What was on display at the Capitol. There is no gray zone here. The line is clear. The line is clear. We need to stand up the way Brian Sicknick stood against the mob on Wednesday. He was an Iraq war veteran who in 2004 opposed the reelection of George W. Bush. He couldn't stand the imperialist violence. After service as a staff sergeant in, New, in the New Jersey uh, Air National Guard, Brian became a Capitol Police officer. On Wednesday afternoon, he tried to stop this angry armed mob surging through the Capitol. And while he was engaging the insurrectionists, someone cracked a fire extinguisher against his skull. He died at the hospital the next day, yesterday. Now, as critical as I've been of the police, it does break my heart that Brian survived and opposed our senseless wars only to die defending our Congress as it tried to count the presidential election votes, overwhelmed and overtaken by a mob. Without much support, as our leaders didn't plan for what was clearly being planned out in the open for weeks. Or was that intentional? Hmm. A lot of promises of change were spilled during the Black Lives Matter summer, along with the blood of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Jacob Blake. But it is clear now that these words didn't really penetrate to the hearts or the minds of many allies, perhaps until now. Our brothers and sisters, our country is at a reckoning. White supremacy is not something that can be cleansed with street art and renaming of street signs or FBI investigations and white supremacy that go nowhere. What is new today is that the dangers of not repairing this rift are finally clear to people who we would not before have thought of as allies. I have heard from more than one friend in the last two days, I didn't realize it was so bad. Even after the hundreds of videos of police shooting people of color, even after Charlottesville, the Proud Boys attacks, the militia organizing to kidnap Governor Whitmore, the Oklahoma City bombing. Well, now you know. What's more, now everyone knows, the whole world knows. Oxygen is cracked through Mitch McConnell's corporate lobbyist echo chamber. Our job is to raise our voices together in solidarity to make it clear that banishing Trump is just the first step in repairing this. Remember, Trump didn't just send the mob to the Capitol. He has been nursing and coddling the racism for years, way before his presidency. Just a few days before this infamy, Trump vetoed a defense spending bill because at long last, it allowed the names of renegade Confederate soldiers to be stripped off of American military bases. That veto is the kind of fuel Trump was pouring on the fire before Wednesday. 
but he didn't start the fire. But we need to put it out for good now. Many, many people are suddenly appalled. It is our job to get them to convert their disgust and in some cases embarrassment into support for the work that needs to be done. Joe Biden is in a tough place with the tiniest of margins in Congress. He must take major actions and we must insist on it. No more compromises, no more handshake deals with shaky characters who have one foot on the soulless racial pandering of the right. The message is clear. There is no economic justice without racial justice and no racial justice without economic justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. told us three quarters of a century ago. So find all those suddenly shaken Americans, whether it is your Republican-leaning aunt or a member of the National Association of Manufacturers. Find them. Talk to them. Don't let them off the hook with words. This is the moment they may actually hear you. Speak for the most vulnerable in our society. As Thomas Paine once said, and we know too well, these are the times that try men's souls. The time for action and solidarity is now. Speaking of solidarity, we have <laughs> probably the expert on solidarity. Jane McAlevey is here to talk about organizing with unions and how we get progress moving in the Biden administration. And then later we have Francesca Fiorentini. She is joining our show for a lively conversation about what's going down on the left and why it actually matters to call it out now. We actually have to start thinking about solidarity and that's what this show is about. So stick around, we'll be right back with the one and only Jane McAlevey. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm so excited. It's Friday and one of my favorite guests is on today. I'm so excited. Jane McAlevey is not only an organizer, an author, and a scholar. She is the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting for the Labor Movement. Also the author of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and a collective bargain unions organizing in the fight for democracy. She works as a strike correspondent for the nation. She's the national deputy director for strategic campaigns on healthcare. Oh, that's important. <laughs> All of these important things that she has been doing. I, the list goes on and on. Jane, you are, you are what we need right now. I am ready to go to church, please. We've been advocating on our show, but I am, I just read you and I just regurgitate it. So now we're going to the source. We've been preaching for the last uh, few months that there's no way to move a progressive agenda forward for working people unless unions are at the table. But, you know, what you've highlighted in this article in The Nation, which I have not mentioned, by the way, uh, is you wrote a piece in The Nation called Why Unions Must Recommit to Expanding Their Base, is that there is, there is essentially uh, a problem with many unions, not all of them, but many unions uh, on the left uh, in terms of how they understand power, right? And how they deal with power. And this is the moment where we actually have to push the pressure points of the Biden administration. And it feels like unions are the only way to do so, but if they're not unified, then how do we do this? So first off, thanks for joining. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. It's always good to be here. It's always nice to talk with you. Thank you. It's true. Yeah, smart, engaging. We're so happy to have you doing what you're doing. You know, we all have a part. So, uh, Jean, <laughs> let's let's just first start off with 
Why aren't unions, which which are membership based organizations, right? Um, trade unions. Why don't they have the ability to really pressure the administrations, the recent Democratic administrations, the way that they were maybe three decades ago, four days, decades ago? Boy, that is, we could be here for 10 weeks. Um, but, you know, in, seriously, but like, it, there's so much to say about that. But in short, it starts with one, they're weaker. We're weaker, right? I mean, frankly, it isn't just us. It's all of the progressive forces, civil rights, I mean, all of it, right? It's like every institution um, in this country is, sadly, every institution that matters for progressive politics um, has been bludgeoned for 40 to 50 years, depending on the institution, right? So I think the context is every progressive sort of sector, the traditional black church, the traditional civil rights movement, the traditional labor movement, the women's movement, however you define that, you know, I mean, every institution and there's lots of academic literature for whatever it's worth about just like the state of like civil society, which this week, even saying those words, is like, ha we're discussing the Confederacy. We'll get there in a minute. But like before the events of this week or before even the last few years, meaning let's just go back to Obama for a minute, right? Like, like, like suspend reality for just a minute. Even in the Obama administration, the entire progressive movement showed up for that moment weaker than we had been in the 50s, 60s, 40s, you know, go way back. So there is a general weakness and that's what I'm really addressing in No Shortcuts, right? In my book, No Shortcuts, I go back to the early 70s and I trace a series of decisions, what I think about strategic mistakes on the part of the entire progressive movement, including unions. I like to put unions in that conversation. We're not different than the social movement, not the parts I work with. We are part of a broader social movement, all of which, has been desperately, horribly, deliberately weakened by neoliberalism, right? That's what the rise of neoliberalism was. Budget cuts, austerity, hacking, state budgets, federal budgets, all of it. So unions show up to the table weaker because everybody's weaker. But we also know that unions have had a particular they've been a particular obsession and focus for good reason on the part of the organized right. Um, and that focus was a right wing that better understands than the Democratic Party. Uh, there's a lot of things, sadly, that they understand better. But in particular, it's like the right wing, the Koch brothers, the well-funded right wing understood that to take down the regulatory apparatus of the United States, they had to first take down unions. So unions were like the center of the bullseye of the institutional organizations to take down for the last 40 to 50 years. And that is essentially what I outlined in No Shortcuts, which you know, it was like a PhD dissertation. So they come to it weak. And then there's all of the, um, again, not unique to unions, but we're going to focus on them, right, I think. But um, then there's all of the sort of internal self-inflicted wounds um, that as our movements get weaker, they're so good at doing to ourselves. Um, that's It's just got to end. You know, it's like it's way got to end because we are not going to be able to put pressure in this moment, on this administration, unless we figure out how to like, as I say in the article, stop running with scissors and start figuring out that solidarity and putting pressure on these, these this new crew that's making so many bad appointments already. But anyway, like it's gonna take serious work for us to, to sort of eat, even, just, even just make sure that the money that we need to end COVID 
and to keep people alive and housed, that's going to be a war in like the first hundred days, I think. So, you know, everyone comes to this moment weaker and we need to be a lot stronger. And Georgia just pointed the way for us, along with some other, you know, bases among the progressive institutions. I want to ask a question about you. We talk about scissors. What do you mean by that? Like the- running with scissors? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just, you know, I wrote the article several weeks back, right? Because it was going in the print edition. And of course, they announced yesterday the labor secretary pick, which was not, uh, had not been announced when I was working on that most recent piece. But, you know, the, the, the minute that there was like an official, forget about the president or anyone else, but, you know, an official understanding that Biden had won, there was an immediate war broke out between the national unions about who they want. First of all, there was two things wrong with this, but like who they wanted for the labor secretary. I was critical several weeks back in a different article saying, why are our ambitions so low? Do you think that the business community wakes up and says, all they're worried about is who can they get for the SEC position or for commerce? No, they're worried about stacking every single appointment in the entire administration. They don't just carve out and say, oh, we're just going to worry about one little sector of power. Um, Like I kept saying, for example, someone else I know that you've had on your show and why not? um, I kept saying that, you know, the head of the flight attendant union, that Sarah Nelson, people kept saying, she should be labor secretary. And, you know, in little social media banter, I kept saying, no, she should be the transportation secretary. Mm. She should be freaking transportation secretary. Like, you mean not people to judge? <laughs> right? Like that? What the hell? It's like, it's like tone deaf. We think so small because we're used to losing so often. And it's a, not having ambition. One my first book was called Raising Expectations, like what organizers do. Like we have to raise our expectations and Georgia helps us do that despite the Confederacy marching in the Capitol, despite everything else. If we keep our eye in our happy place for the week, which is what happened in Georgia, it's not just a happy place to go to. It's also deeply meaningful to unpack in terms of how do we set higher expectations for what we know what we deserve, but also for what we're going to demand. And an example of watching sort of I don't even what you call the sectors, left progressives, whatever, constantly people constantly, and Sarah would laugh, I think, if she was here, because I kept like including her in this banter, you know, on social media, people would say, we would need her for labor secretary. And I would respond to every person and say, God darn it, we need her for transportation secretary. Like there's plenty of people to fill in for labor secretary, right? But she's like, literally like, she's like, why don't we think of her as someone who's in charge of logistics? For the world, which would be so much more important. Actually, it would be in some ways, right? Given given for the labor movement, even like if we could get one pick, I might have taken that one or education, right? But instead, we were so don't run with scissors was like the 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 the, the demands were so small already that the, that a fight broke out about who should be labor secretary. So one, the national labor movement was not fighting about transport, education, commerce, you know, all the rest of it. They were focused on one like teeny little part of the federal government, an important one, but they're all really important. Um, And then secondly, they just began to fight. Like there was no, there was no thought that we could hold, that we could even like fight behind the scenes, maybe, you know what I mean? People just began fighting openly and they were fighting openly about essentially, initially, honestly, even though one of them is different than the other two, but like three different white men, right? Which is Marty Walsh, the former mayor of Boston, or current mayor of Boston, comes out of the building trades. Andy Levin, my former boss at the AFL-CIO, who's the congressperson now in Michigan, 
and then of course Bernie Sanders. Um, and I remember thinking early on, I, I thought Bernie could do some other stuff. Same thing, like Bernie should have had, we should have had way bigger ambitions for where he should be in this administration. Sure. But anyway, we digress. So the issue was not running with scissors is about, could you, could you build some discipline into the work we're doing and figure out behind the scenes, like what's the agreed upon number one, two and three position? Could it maybe be something other than, um, not that it, not that I lead with identity as a general habit. I think it's all very intermixed, right? Our whole movement needs to be deeply class, race, gender intermixed. But like, really, three three older white guys in this moment in history, when most of the labor movement's one of color, like in the growing sectors of the economy. Anyway, this, so this not- is, that's a key point. Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, you know, you know, I'm involved. I'm on the board of Matriarch, and one thing that we keep hitting over the head is why. The conversation right now, all of these frontline workers, I mean, granted, there are many industries that have been on the front lines, but when you see teachers, when you see domestic workers, when you see nurses, uh, flight attendants, of course, these are women-led unions and majority women held, uh, made up of unions, and, and, and many of those unions are majority women of color. So it's just blinding. <laughs> that we're having these conversations in 2021 at this point with the Biden administration, who owes its presidency to women of color, owes its Senate to women of color in a pandemic, yeah. in a global potentially depression. Yeah. And this is the conversation we're having. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? And I also point out in the article that in 1932, right, when the first labor secretary was appointed, it was Frances Perkins, a woman. Like in a moment when the trading movement was for all sorts of sexist historic reasons, right? And the patriarchy, et cetera, was a much more, in terms of wage work, right? It was a much more male world. And even in 1932, they appointed a woman to be the head of the Department of Labor and who happened to be brilliant. You know, we can thank her for many of the most important laws still in the books today. Um, So it just seemed like an ambitionless moment um, to me to have labor leaders running around lining up which union would back which of those three guys was just sort of like, oh, really, folks, can't we do better than this? It's, it's, it's a labor movement so beaten down uh, that its own expectations for what it deserves are so small. And I think that's, that's how, as a labor organizer, that is how you meet that, that, that's like the first, that's why my first book is called Raising Expectations, literally, which I remember like Verso and publishers and people saying, what does that even mean? And I would say the first job of an organizer is to like re-raise individual workers' expectations and then collectively that they deserve more than a crap quality of life that they've been handed by neoliberalism. Because people get so beaten down individually, they think, oh, if I can just hang on to my job, if I can just get a, you know, a small raise, if I can just get a, and that's, you know, so there's a problem with individual workers being beaten down in this country. And then depending on the kind of work are really beaten down. Um, and there's a problem with the whole movement's expectations of what we deserve and what we can demand. And I, for one, am sick and tired of small demands. Like this is the moment to rip it up and say we're starting again, like at many levels. And if we don't start with that kind of ambition, with big vision and big, big ambition, we're not going to get very far. And then we have to pair that with very real strategy in the there field. There you go. Because there That's is great. strategy. Like there are ways that we know how to win. And Georgia just showed it to us again, that we did not win Georgia between November and January 5th. We won, we didn't even win it 
And then people are like, oh, Stacey Abrams. It's like, we didn't, it, it didn't even start with Stacey, though. I'm thank, so thankful for her role in the work in Georgia of lifting up voter suppression. But there's been an army of people on the ground all across Georgia building a real, what we call base expansion, right? That's like the title of my article. Like people don't even know what base expansion means. That's where we're, that's where we're going out and knocking on doors to people who are not involved in anything anyone's doing and beginning to engage them in rebuilding small D democracy. That is the work right now. And Georgia just stands out as a beacon of hope. You know, and I, I've been saying to people for the last couple of days, I wanna look at Georgia and the extraordinary base expansion work done there and and a movement that was ready and capable. I mean, if you ask folks in Georgia, did they understand the day before the official presidential election back in November, that the weight of the entire country was gonna be on their one state, right? If they, if they were not, if they did not already have a really extraordinary ground level grassroots organizing infrastructure, they couldn't have walked into the moment that they ran into uh, like firefighters and saved the rest of us. You know what I mean? So it, literally the presidency and the Senate. Yes. But here's, here's the thing that, that, you know, tying this into the democratic party. I mean, I've, I've been, uh, I've made a good chunk of my last like 10 years of my life assessing the democratic party to my own disdain. Um, wasted time. No, wasted time. Maybe goddess bless you. Yes. (laughs) But um, it's no secret that, that the Democrats sucked money away from state parties and local organizing, but it was simultaneously happening. It didn't happen just over the Obama years. It it started back late seventies, but simultaneously, this was happening as unions were being, uh, you know, they were declaring war. The Koch brothers were declaring war on unions. And, you know, the, the way that I see, so we had the house for 30 years until, uh, was it 94? We lost the house. That to me is, is a response to the Democratic Party and, and unions being disconnected, not just from each other strategically, because they because union members were purged from the Democratic Party membership, but also with the grassroots. And so when you don't have unions organizing and recruiting, and I mean, when I was a kid, I used to make phone calls at union halls. I don't even know if people do that anymore I for know. their local candidates. And I'd stuff envelopes. I mean, this is this is a different era, but, but it, it's just the Democratic Party used to always be hand in hand recruiting candidates, recruiting staff, organizing, training in every single city in the in the country and i feel like it's it's a shame that there's people have to take it upon themselves like they did in in, in georgia and fundraise for their local county party or local group to make phone calls and register voters I and mean, that's what the democratic party used to be in conjunction with unions yeah. so with that i my my big takeaway from this and, and question is why is union leadership so afraid right now. I mean, I understand that they've been under attack, but we've got a democratic president. I mean, this is the time to move. So what, what, where's the fear here? You know what the fear is? The fear is the, 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 the piece that I focused on, which is confusing access with power. Um, and that's a fundamental error of judgment that many make, but unions make it more because in a, in a beaten down progressive movement outside of a handful of, you know, Warnocks, frankly, like top black church leaders in the sort of legacy civil rights movement outside of a handful of key actors in the civil rights movement institutionally. I don't mean really individually. Institutionally, the labor movement is still the most powerful movement within the progressive tent. 
as beaten down as we are, we still have more access and more power and more money. And so what happens, and it really was a huge mistake under the Obama administration, is that the minute that Obama won, uh, he turned around and basically said to the entire labor movement and to every progressive group, by the way, Valerie Jarrett, I'm sorry, but playing the role that she played in the She's early back. years of Obama. <laughs> I mean, talk about someone who was enforcing discipline like an enforcer. You know, Jarrett basically said to a, a, many people I know very closely, you can test us in public. You will never have even you'll never even attend a meeting. You won't be invited to like the, the, the lowest level meeting in the history of the White House. You will be out. And so there was a very, I mean, it was so intense the first year, how strongly they said to people, you will get in relationship to how nice you are to us in public, basically. You will not contest the Barack Obama administration in public. That was like super strong and enforced. And when people crossed it, they cut them off. Like they cut them out of meetings, they cut them. And, what, and part of what I say in the article is, who gives a crap, really? Because the two institutions that won big under Obama were the two sectors of the progressive movement who said, we don't care. Like we're not gonna do being nice to you, playing behind the scenes, backroom deal-making, thinking that we're important because we're showing up in our suits to your meetings at the White House and to your cocktail parties. We don't care. Like, we're out to win. That was the LGBT community and the immigrants' rights community. Yep. Those two sec... And they were cut out. I mean, in the long history of the Obama administration, if you go back to the inside plays that were going on, they did cut them out of, like, formal, you're not on our commissions, you're not getting appointments to low-level positions, and people were like, yeah, we, we don't really care because we're dying um, or, we, or we're getting you know, killed and we can't be married and everything else that the LGBT community demanded. But And the immigrants' rights community, these are the people who went in and said, yeah, we don't care. We're going to protest. We're going to occupy. We're going to demand. We're going to go after you to hold you accountable to our base. And they got the biggest gains in that eight-year period. And that's the lesson I'm trying to lift up in the article is that we're not going to win things by being nice to the Biden people. We're going to win things by actually out organizing them, building power, showing power, um, and getting back to the work the way we know how to do it, which is holding politicians accountable. That's that's like to me that that's the, the first thing I learned as a young trading organizer coming out of a very smart, very good union that I didn't realize how good and smart we were way, 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 way back in the day when I was a lot younger. Um, the very first thing I learned and the very first thing I was taught was. When we elect a politician, the first thing we do is put a test in front of them to hold them accountable to that demand. Because we need to teach a lesson to them early on that we have power and we are not gonna just acquiesce to you. That's like the opposite of what the national trade union movement is doing right now. So, you know, the, 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 longer, the longer I live, the more I realize my very first experiences were so good um, in terms of getting strategy right. And now you gotta have an organizational, you gotta have an organization strong enough to actually hold them accountable but we if the labor movement if even if even like the eight unions that are the ones that i call still trying you know i would say there's like there's the labor movement and then there's the eight unions that are still trying if even just those eight would right. agree on strategy um we could seriously hold the Biden administration accountable to a set of demands that workers and the working class are desperate for in the United States. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is, we've broken this down with, with different experts in the last few weeks saying 
even though unions are weaker than they've ever been, even though you, there are good unions and, and mediocre unions and definitely some bad unions, yep. the good ones, if they just got on the same page and pressured them, it, there's, there's so much at stake that Biden, I mean, he owes everything to labor at this point. And also he has to do something. I mean, the moment is the crisis. It's yeah. not, it's not the movement that has the leverage. It's the moment that has the leverage. So, I mean, with that being said, for those, for those of us who don't have um, in the audience, who don't have experience in unions, how do we reform from within? How do we make the leadership more accountable to its members yeah, so the that team- they're actually taking those moves? Yeah, two two things and two examples. Um, one is, you know, I was just involved in a call this morning, uh, as I frequently am, um, working with a lot of teachers unions um, who themselves are making demands on their national leadership, right? So you've got strong local unions. It's the, the only way it's really going to happen is when member, the same relationship between our movement and Biden and, and Harris and company has got to be between uh, rank and file members and their local unions and their national leadership. It's about holding people accountable, right? So um, there have been a series, an increasing series of demands, certainly in the teachers unions, where you've got, you've got strong enough locals from Chicago to LA to Oakland to fill in the blank, like a bunch of them, who are, who are coordinating and making demands on their national leadership to demand more, not less. Um, right now, to demand, you know, we impeach the lunatic uh, the genius lunatic Confederacy member uh, before um, he's out, you know, with the language that says you can never run again. So, uh, so that's the way it's going to work. Um, even in 2016, after the 2016, just if you look at the teacher unions as an example, in 2016, when the American Federation of Teachers did this super early endorsement of Clinton, uh, it out, you know, it outraged a lot of the rank and file teacher union leaders. And so the result was they came back and changed the language two years later in the national convention so that the national leadership couldn't go out and do an early endorsement without the sign off on the base. So that's real accountability. That's a really good example of you've got to have locals strong enough to take risk. And almost the same parallel discussion goes on. If you've got local leaders that members aren't pushing, who may want to rise into national leadership or something, they're going to think to themselves, um, I shouldn't cross, you know, I shouldn't cross the top union leadership. Well, first of all, it's wrong to think that making a demand of your union leadership is crossing them, right? Like if you've got a set of demands and you were elected locally that you're making on them, that's a completely legitimate way to, to, to move. So that's one thing. And that's real. And that's got to happen in a bunch of unions. That's strong locals, that members make demands on their locals and strong locals make demands on the national union to push them harder and farther than they're willing to go um, to get them out of their comfort zone, to not be worried about pissing off, you know, Harris or Biden or whoever it is, or whoever the chief of staff role is going to be, or whoever any number of the, the gatekeepers are. Like, don't worry about offending the gatekeepers, you know, worry about losing, you know, I'd worry more about losing than offending a gatekeeper. That's one. Two is the other part that I wrote about, which holds, which holds all of labor accountable to a broader social movement agenda, is sort of the method and the approach of rank and file members themselves being the ones to deeply engage their broader community um, in the coalition work at the local level so that it's going to be harder so that when you get to the local level, a state level or a big city or whatever, local, out of the national riffraff of the headquarters, um, in campaigns that I run, the thing I always do is we chart the members' connections, not just to each other at work. That's a, a good union organizer does that. But the thing I'm suggesting that good union organizers have to do next, which people don't do because it's not in our tradition yet, 
is then equally systematically chart the relationships that existing rank and file members have inside of their broader community, to their church groups, to their civil rights groups, ah. to their immigrant rights groups. And then the members become a source of holding using their own community ties to hold their unions accountable to broader social justice goals, to a form of political education that's bigger. So the very first campaign I ran in Sanford, Connecticut, just in, for a second, years of dating myself. So I don't even know if you were born. When were you born? Anyway, a long damn time ago, last century. Four. <laughs> so last century, in like one of the first campaigns I ran, that's when I learned this lesson that we charted all the members' connections in particular. We had a lot of them in the big black churches in the community that we were organizing in. And there was a housing crisis emerging. And I was saying to the leadership, we gotta work on this, you know, this, this, this plan to gentrify the whole region. Um, and the unions, honestly, which I talked about in my first book, the union leaders were pretty good. We're like, that's not our issue. Why don't you call up Acorn? Acorn still existed. That's how long ago this was anyway. But like, you go call up those housing groups and I'm like a young organizer going, how come when I'm on the doors with rank and file members and all they're talking about is the fact that they're all gonna be moved out of the city then that's a labor issue. And we were able to leverage that becoming a major labor issue where we put in our skill and resources because we had the members go to their churches and have the churches make the demands of the union leaders when the union leaders were making demands on the picket lines, right? So it was that's member-led accountability over a local program to hold the trade union movement accountable to broader social justice demands. We have to strengthen the trade unions, but also have a strong community-based sector that can hold them accountable to things like Black Lives Matter and much more than that, housing, for God's sakes, you know, like really big issues that are affecting workers. Especially right now. We, we have a question from, from one of our supporters, Vinny Holiday. He says, do you think union culture has to change such that members are not simply passive members, but also politically aware and active? And I think that that's part of the point you were just making. But how, how would you do that institutionally in, in, internally um, within a union? Yeah. So I think I think that this this process of charting the members connections that they have already to their community organically is a central way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's so uncommon. It's so rarely done. But when we do it, what what begins to happen is that rank and file workers begin to understand the broader political analysis of the labor market in which they live. So in Philadelphia, I'll give another example, get myself out of, out of Connecticut, and I'll go to Philadelphia in 2016. In Philadelphia in 2016, we were organizing most of the nurses in Philadelphia hospitals to form new unions. And we got to the point where the organization inside the shop was really strong, meeting inside the hospitals. Like the nurses had now built really strong internal organization. And we still didn't have enough power at the bargaining table to win yet. Like we needed more power than we had. So then we went into phase two, which was controversial we did it. It always is when I'm leading it, but the members like it. So that's, a, that's good, for, good enough for me, the members like it. We began to chart all their connections to you know, black churches and all the places that they already had connections in their community. And when we began to sort of show a power structure analysis of greater Philadelphia to a room of 300 newly organized rank and file nurse leaders across seven hospitals, and they began to, we began to show so your CEO is in a relationship to this set of power players in the city, but you're the leader of your, your three biggest, most powerful black churches that just hosted Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, fill in the blank. It was 2016, right? Everyone's coming to Philadelphia. But we began to show in simple maps the relationship between their hospital CEOs and how political power was working in Philadelphia. Those nurses 
political education was rocked in a way it never really had been. And they were all the first to say it. So part of what I say in the article is we have to build stronger, more resilient communities. And the labor movement needs to see part of its job as doing that. And the method to do it is this thing I call comprehensive charting, where you go from, from charting workplace connections to charting our connections to the community through the lives of the rank and file. Because if, if you, let's acknowledge what a worker is gonna say. You know, it, it's gonna be hard to go up against your union leadership if you're one rank and file worker. But what we did in Connecticut 30, whatever years ago, just about, is I understood that. I had been saying to the union leadership, we need to work on this housing fight, gentrification, bulldoze all the housing. And the leaders were resisting. So we got some people who had more power than either me as an organizer or the rank and file leaders as individuals. We had them quietly working the very powerful black church leadership in that city. And then they went to the union leaders and said, you want us to help you on these organizing drives and on these strikes and picket lines and budget fights? We're down for that. And we need you in turn to have us, to be with us in stopping the gentrification of the city. And we rose to that moment, right? So it's for each worker, even in a local fight, it's about thinking about that power analysis and who can you bring along with you to make the demands of your leadership, who not just members, that's first and foremost, but then who else can you bring along that's gonna help move the local union leadership, just like we need to bring those players into debates with the national union leadership to move people on a broader agenda. That's a social justice agenda. That's gonna build a stronger, more vibrant, politically educated team of voters going to the polls in the next election. Like that is what we need in this country desperately. And, and what I love about that is you, you're reminding people of the power that they already have. I think a lot of folks feel hopeless in, in these moments of crisis. And then when it, when you start to break it down, you think, oh, no, no, I've got I've got a whole community here. And this is and they have my back because they have a stake at the table as well. Um, we have a question real quick before we wrap up. It's it's I, I love talking power with you because people ask tough questions about power and, yeah. and don't have an opportunity. It's great. So um, Columbia McAleeb and I I apologize if I didn't say your name right, uh, says respect to you. Hope to attend uh, your strike school. Are you, are you doing another strike school? School. Yeah, we haven't announced a date yet, May or June, though. We're, okay. we're, people should be looking for like a May-June. Perfect. I will be at that. Uh, what are your thoughts on using Pelosi's re-election to speakership as leverage for a strategy? And of course, this is this is sort of an evolution, a smart question, though, evolution out of this big Medicare for All debacle that happened on uh, the podcast left, I'll say. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I have to be honest, I've only been on the margins of watching that debate a That's little okay. bit. So You're fine. <laughs> I'm glad you were on the margins. Worrying about Georgia turnout was more important anyway. Yeah, so, it was, wasn't it? Interesting. I think, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. To, to the degree that I was even, I, I finally had to say to some people, what is this fight going on? Anyway, so without getting into it, I will say, um, as someone who talks a lot about what we call structure tests, that part of how we know and we're ready to win is that structure test can reveal for us, are we capable of winning? What I try to counsel people not to do are structure tests that reveal our weakness, which- That's, wow, that's profound. Do all the time. Like go on out there and yell about something and demand some vote when, when the point of what we, what organizers call real structure tests are we do escalating actions where we begin to understand how close are we to having enough power to win? I hate, and here's, here's the union example. Unions do this all the time. They'll say, 
Um, Fridays are going to be a red, red t-shirt day. Teacher unions do this. Or a, lot of, a lot of unions do it. Friday, every week, every Friday, you know, you, you come, you get your orientation, you've been hired at some job or something, and they're like, oh, by the way, and every Friday, we ask everyone to wear their, their union shirt, you know, to, to work. And then I always, the first thing I say to people is, that's interesting. What do you do to make sure that everyone actually is wearing the union shirt? And they're like, well, we just asked them. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. So how many are actually wearing the shirt that you've declared to the employer? It union, union is, union, you know, Friday is union logo day. Um, and you have like 2% of the workers wearing it. So what are you telegraphing to the boss that you have no organization, no loyalty and no structure inside the workplace? Don't do it. So that's my indirect way of saying we only should be calling for things um, I feel like we, we, it, we're better off doing the work that builds our power so that when we make a move, that's a really significant move, we're going to win. I mean, I don't just go on strike because I'm pissed off at the boss and feel like I'm going on strike today. I'm not going to have workers go on strike until, the work, until we have a credible understanding that the level of organization and unity and power built is going to give us a fair shot at winning that fight. So I'm more interested in what's the hard work we have to do to get to the point where we can actually really win the fight. Now, yes, there's some whole debate about there once in a while, you know, we need to force a vote, whatever. But generally speaking, it's not my bias at all. My bias is why reveal weakness when what we should be doing is building our strength. And, and not only that, I mean, historically, uh, this would be very dangerous. If, if, if we were yeah. not in this era, it would actually at least directly, not like through policies and lack of, of response to, to Medicare for all or whatever, it would actually kill people. Directly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to me, it's, um, again, to the degree that I was frittering around the edges of listening to some of that stuff, I just think, um, I, you know, I mostly think that it, there aren't enough people in the sort of self-declared left who have ever had to put their out. Uh, something on the line, ours is on the line, um, in a win-lose in, in a win -lose contestation um, and be held accountable to what the outcome was and what the implications of that outcome were. So for those of us who actually take on really hard fights that have really huge consequences regularly, where 10, 20,000, 100,000, 400,000 people's lives are on the line going into a strike, for example, or a big union election, um, we're not doing that unless we think we had a reasonable chance to win. That's right. period, right? We, winning matters. And I feel like there's this weird weakness in the U.S. left or the U.S. progressive movement whereby um, focusing a lot on winning is like somehow something that we don't do. You know what I mean? And I always think our movements get bigger when we win. Georgia's victories right. are going to lead to other Southern states' movements believing That's that right. they can now win. That's when the right. Chicago teachers walked off the job in 2012, they single-handedly, through one huge strike, re-raised the expectations That's of the right. education sector that the strike can work again. And so we're having winning strikes again. People need to see people winning, yeah. and that then raises their expectation and inspires them. If you see people losing, it isn't very motivating. Here, here, Jane McAlevey took us to church today. I know you got to run. We love you. We hope to have you on again soon.
Always a pleasure. Go check out her books. No Shortcuts, definitely a must read. All of her books, we'll put them in the uh, info section. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Really nice to see you. Keep up the good work. You too. You Definitely you too. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, before we go, uh, to a break, I should say, not go-go. Before we go to the next break, I want to give a shout out to our new moderator, Chuck Diesel. Uh, he saw me on Clickbait. Clickbaity today. This morning we, uh, uh, oh man, it was, that was a hot morning. If you have not checked out, it's on the Ben Dixon Show channel. Um, Clickbaity Thirst Trap. Thirst Trap. No, Clickbaity Thirst Trap. I always miss it up. We had an amazing morning. Go check it out. Uh, check it out every day, but definitely check out today's show. I was, I was honored to be their first white woman on. <laughs> it was real fun. Really, really fun. That's why I'm all jazzed up today. I've had 32 cups of coffee because I was up early. All right, we'll be right back with Francesca Fiorentini. at us we're matching with our purple i love it the best lighting in all of youtube is francesca fiorentini's lighting i gotta say uh you're on mute just as a heads up so first off welcome back <laughs> uh hi, guys know me hi i gotta do my, my my regular pitch i haven't done this make sure to click that smash smash that like button click that subscribe button if you are not joining us on patreon uh guys what are you waiting for we're, we're not rolling in like the who knows what money at this point, which we're going to talk about in a second. I'll just say there are no foreign governments or right-wing conspirators or who knows what uh, funding our show. You guys are funding it. So check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show and join our book club. We are in the midst of reading Thomas Paine's, uh, the book about Thomas Paine by Harvey K. If you haven't gotten it already, you will get it any minute now. It is, uh, you can join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show one of the book club entries. And I think the next book we're going to do is actually Jane McAlevey's book, but I don't want to tease it too That's soon. That's awesome. Too soon. Francesca, so much to talk about. Thanks for hanging out. Um, you know, Jane and I, 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 I could get, I could watch her all day long, just preach and advise. And I know you were on a taping. Um, if I can give a little bit of a teaser, you did a taping for TMBS, the Michael Brooks show Legacy Project. Yeah. With Joshua Con Russell, friend of the show. Uh, and Jane McAlevey. And I heard it was amazing. Yeah, it was great. Um, yes, I could also hear her talk forever. And yeah, we we dug real deep into the intersections between organizing and punditry. And, you know, in the times of social media, um, everyone is encouraged to be a pundit. Look at us. Here we are with our special backgrounds. And, you know, sometimes that's not always what we need to have a true force that can win and can make change. Um, punditry is good, but organizing is probably better it is definitely better and you know can you believe it that we used to actually win without pundits without msnbc <laughs> without cable news like oh, we God. used to actually i mean anytime people freak out about this moment just remember the progressive era when women i mean 12 year old girls put their lives on the line yeah. for us and they didn't have pundits they didn't have uh, they were fighting oppressive forces that were literally killing them like in their face killing them so as dark as it might seem right now remember we have been in a much much worse place um with that i gotta i gotta talk to you a little bit about fascism mm. uh it's a topic that i know we we like to fight something that we like to fight regularly 
something's been going on the last few days, last few weeks, but I think it became extremely clear with the the storming of the Capitol. Um, there has been a facilitation, whether it's been conscious or not, an enabling, a facilitation of the rise of fascism over at least the Trump years, and it never really went away. But uh, I'll start off with Dave Sirota's piece in Jacobin. Front of the show, Dave Sirota, uh, makes the case that conditions for the right, far-right insurrection on the Capitol are not new. They've been created through the support of right-wing legislators, deliberate decisions by law enforcement, and the urging of Trump. Mm-hmm. Francesca, I mean, at this point where McConnell seems to have woken up to something that was right in front of his face the whole time and he was probably aware of, we have so much work to just rip this apart. And what is it going to take for us to fight? What is it going to take for us to not just expose, but really purge, whether it's fascism, white extremism, white, 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 nationalism, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. because there's a nationalism, te- nationalist tendency to this. What is it going to take for us? Oh, my God. Everything. So, oh, my gosh. So much anti-racist Sesame Street, which I already thought Sesame Street was anti-racist because, you know, it's like everyone's a different color. There's like a, you know, homeless man. You know, there's just like a lot of it's I, it's like. Didn't we all learn our lessons back uh, when we learned our ABCs that like, uh, you know, we're, we are all equal, but that's, of course, that's a liberal pipe dream. I'm, I'm a lib for even liking Sesame Street. Here's the point. Uh, Dave Sirota in that piece basically argues um, that we are, in order to root out extremism, we're also going to need positive plans that actually materially help people out. And I think that this is going forward. For me, it's the two-pronged strategy of, or maybe it's three, but one, ignoring the Republican Party. We got the Senate. Y'all can sit on it and rotate. I'm sorry. Like you can, you can go away forever. We don't need you. And, but that means whipping the Democrats, right? I mean, that means actually having power in the Democratic Party to really deliver for the American people and steer them away from some of this, you know, bonkers conspiracy, you know, the onslaught of right-wing media that is constantly telling, filling their brain with worms, straight up literal worms. And so that is one, it's, it's no, it's really not compromising with the Republican party. And then it's like, okay, well, where are we pushing? Like, where do we go? How do we deliver for people? Um, you know, whether it's a federal jobs guarantee, Green New Deal, more than $2,000 stimulus, like dropping student debt, um, and then finally, let me just say that for the Sesame Street stuff, like, yo, you guys, there needs to be a federal plan to address racism. And, right. you know, and because I'm calling it what it is, it's, it's white nationalist extremist violence. That is exactly what it is. There needs to be an educational plan coming from the federal government. Like, the, it should be mandated. It should yep. be mandated to learn about our own history. It, you cannot paper over the Confederacy. And, you know, as I think many schools in the South have been papered over when they're like, read about, oh, and then there was a disagreement and the Confederate flag is all about patriotism. You know, like, meanwhile, no. they're, they're learning this at Robert E. Lee Elementary School. <laughs> totally, totally. So yeah, it, yeah. it's like, it actually, I mean, that's such a great point because, in Germany, for instance, they, li- I mean, granted, we have different free speech laws, which is their, of course, their loophole. Uh, Germany has done, so- they've been so ex- aggressive about amending and making up and, and, and re-educating yes. even folks who were 
I mean, they're barely alive now, but who lived through World War II. Um, there's been a, a, a very strategic effort to do so. And this isn't, you know, Germany's not the only place, but do you think that, I mean, I, I start off the show saying like, this is our moment. We got to start talking to people now before they get distracted by something else, which they're mm-hmm. already starting to do. Fox News is already talking about, well, BLM was just as violent and, and, and uh, you know, okay, yes, the violence was really bad the other day, but also BLM was really violent. I mean, that's their messaging now because they're trying to pivot to something. They're grasping. Sure. But while we have them in the moment, while we have Senator Lindsey Graham, while we have McConnell really calling out Josh Hawley, calling out Ted Cruz, calling out Donald Trump, while we are about to go into another impeachment, we got to get something. Channeling our inner Jane McAlevey, we got to get something through this. And maybe yeah. it's just that. And I, I mean... To be honest with you, I do think there has to be accountability. And that's been the biggest problem, uh, sadly, throughout our whole history, is there hasn't been accountability for insurrectionism, for, you know, like, even, I mean, even after the Civil War, like, there was, I believe, I can't remember, maybe, maybe it was when slavery ended that, like, white people, white former slave owners got, got reparations for the money they lost because they could no longer own slaves. So that is the world we're in. And we started with that reconstruction, right? You know, when there were actually um, black officials from the South elected uh, to local and to federal government. And then of course there was an entire white backlash and they formed the KKK, et cetera. So like it is accountability. And for me, I don't see a difference between holding you know, the la- never ever holding those former Confederate states accountable to what we just saw the other day. How are we holding Republican lawmakers who, I'm just going to say it, they're an insurrectionist party. Noam Chomsky called the Republican Party the greatest, the, the, the organization that poses the greatest threat to life on earth. Like, you know, whether it's climate change, white nationalism, like that's not hyperbole anymore. No. So, so it is, what is the accountability? How, you know, I think Corey Bush is doing a good thing in terms of trying to get these folks to resign. But for me, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it should, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm also like, I don't ever want to hear a Republican say anything else unless it is, here is my plan to stop the extremism in this country. Here is my plan to stop white nationalism. That's it. Like if on MSNBC, if you're a former Republican, you know, Michael Steele, I don't care about your moralisms. No. How are you going to stop the white nationalism that you allowed to fester in your party beginning before Obama, but absolutely under Obama? What are you going to do? Or do you let that party go? Are you making a new party? You can't have the Democratic Party as much as they're trying to infect us. (laughs) The Lincoln Project. Maybe you should uh, add add amending your party's racial positioning as one of your multi-million dollar ad campaigns. That would be great. Just just a thought. Okay, so the Republican Party... uh, needs to be crushed. The, 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 the racism in the Republican Party needs to be crushed. White supremacy needs to be cracked down on and, and folks need to be arrested and prosecuted. This is the only time I'm ever going to call for police to arrest folks. Arrest these motherfuckers. Because oh, yeah. this was horrifying. And if you're part of it, they should be investigated and arrested. And the FBI, whose investigations have been going on for over a decade, what are you doing about it? 
No, they they've I mean, I think that the directive since Trump got in office was to shut down a lot of the investigations that had been started into some of these, you know, far right militant organizations. So we have to reopen those. And look, all we're asking is for you to treat treat these insurrectionists the same way you treat you know, a Black Lives Matter demonstrator, someone protesting uh, against the IMF and World Bank, the Iraq War, uh, Occupy Wall Street, you know, um, someone who did property damage, people who have been charged with federal crimes and, you know, and facing like 70 years, like they're in the insane ways that, and look, I don't, I'm not saying that's good, but like, you can't, if you wield justice in that way, you know, it's time to wield it once again, except against actual threats to because once again, these people don't believe in government. No. You know, I think that the left, we are critical and cynical of government, of course, uh, especially cynical of the amount of money that flows through it. But we ultimately be- tr- are trying to make these institutions better and That's more right. representative. These folks don't believe in they're they're they think the they hate the police. All the police, they're trying to, you know, uh, they're trying to tell you what you can and can't do. They're trying to tell you that you shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't be able to walk around with your AR-15 or whatever it is, you know? And, and they're not even, I mean, it's not even libertarian. So so we have the Republican problem. This is this is this is very real and it's in your face. Yeah. But simultaneously, I think what's been exposed over the last uh, few days, but through the last few weeks, but really highlighted the last few days is the complacency even on our side, the need for solidarity. We, we talk about this all the time as friends. Uh, the left, solidarity is not a hashtag. We, need to, we have very little leverage right now, and the leverage we do have should be used carefully and thoughtfully and definitely not against our allies. So I want to play um, friend of our show, Andrea has this new YouTube channel. You got to go check it out if you if you haven't already. But I want to play pieces of a clip she did yesterday. And it was, I, I, I just, I thought this is what we've got to hear right now because uh, the line is drawn. And, and, and I think she made a really good point. So let's, uh, let's do the first part of this clip right now. These are fascists being funded by fascists to enable fascism. That's what this is. They know that if they are able to convince maybe margins, 1%, 2% of left-leaning people that this coup is okay, maybe they would be more likely to get away with it. That's what these people's purpose is mm-hmm. on this planet, is to carry water for fascism. Let's, let's, let's dissect that real quick, because I think um, she's, she's addressing folks who platform People who are, are frankly fascist, Gavin McGinnis, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Alex Jones, Gavin McGinnis or fascist, Gavin McGinnis or fascist lights, mm-hmm. uh, partner with them on stage and do world tours like I'm on the left and they're on the right. Isn't this fun? Um, but as far or, or even further, leftists who don't speak out against this and maybe channel anger in these moments into different directions um, or even worse, uh, just straight up apologize for it. Mm-hmm. So I I come back to Antifa, um, and I and I will. This is why um, Antifa is an 
unorganized, non, you know, affiliated, like there's no membership card, but group that consistently has stepped to neo-Nazis um, for decades, right? Um, every time there's a white supremacist rally, there are neo-Nazis in a community, Antifa's there, and they show up, they are, you know, black clad, they're very militant, they don't wield uh, like uh, guns or anything, but they're very much militant. Um, I I don't know if I would say that they're nonviolent, but they they are um, taking direct action against neo Nazis. Some of the same people who are now giving a pass to to what happened to these insurrectionists in the Capitol building have called on the left to you know well you really need to rein in Antifa like and. That is so insane to me. Look, sorry, let me just make the point. Antifa is probably one of the farthest left groups I can imagine, right? That's the pretty much the farthest, one of the farthest left, yeah. like street organiza- like yeah. street organizations doing, you know, battle with these neo-Nazis. They're anti-fascist. That's literally their cause. So don't ever think that there is anything liberal, there's anything centrist, there's anything mealy-mouthed about confronting Nazis. There is not. Okay, it is, it's as pretty much down as you can get, you know? <laughs> I'm not endorsing the tactics, I'm not saying they're good, but that is very far left. What is not left is to give these insurrectionists a pass. And what I was saying before is some folks um, who who have made a name for themselves, writing a lot about, oh, you know, uh, or c- parading around as leftists, have even said that, well, Antifa is the real problem and have played into that same right wing ideology that somehow being against fascism is actually also fascism, which I completely disagree with. So once again, I think that what happens every time the left gets organized and what happens every time we pull in one direction, what happens every time we win, when we grow the squad, sectarians will rear their heads. People who want to see the left fail will rear their heads. And I don't know what their motives are. I don't know who's paying them. I don't know if they're, they just see more of a lane for themselves um, in giving a nod and a wink to the right wing. Um, but that is exactly what is happening. And so I think it's important for us to not get distracted by that, right. but also good on Andrea for calling it out. Let's, 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 let's show the second part because it's, it's a perfect yeah. lead in what you said that, you know, every time we win, we get to this point because she, she leans on history. And, and I believe that, I mean, I see the Antifa flag in the background. I believe that Andrea's um, is, well, there's no membership to Antifa, but she lines with Antifa. So let's, let's play the rest of the clip. And then we have this fucking weirdo. So AOC, this is at 8 p.m. After pipe bombs were discovered at the U.S. Capitol, this dumb motherfucking fascist goon decided to mock AOC, who was currently at this point barricaded in an office, scared for her life because Republicans, at the behest of some of the force to vote people, know that AOC is an enemy. AOC has higher name recognition in Republicans than they than she does in Democrats. The reason is because they want to kill her. This person, JV Graz on Twitter, they've got like a, a 30,000 followers or something, right? This person has been enabling a smear campaign against AOC, saying AOC is evil, saying AOC is a scumbag and AOC is single-handedly in the way of our healthcare. 
this person has been carrying water for fascists. And after the fascists try to kill her and the rest of the members of Congress, he applauds the fascists and mocks AOC. These are not leftists. These are not organizers. These are not socialists. These are not communists. These are not tankies. These are Nazis. Nazis, by the way, that are occupying a slightly different media space. Nazis in the 1940s knew not all of them could say the same thing. They knew that some of them would have to act as the pipeline to bring other people to the Nazi propaganda uh, that they were going to espouse. They paid people to promote their propaganda in unions, in union meetings. They paid people to promote their propaganda with their families. Because it's a lot easier to accept a narrative if it's your friend telling you. Mm. I mean, what I think was so... So today we talk a lot about solidarity and strategy and staying together. Um, as we... It is extremely clear what, what is at stake and what we are facing. Especially without Trump in the White House. Because now he can go off and do whatever he wants. I mean, what, I don't know how they were controlling him, but however they were, uh, he was controlled. Unless he ends up in jail, he's going to go out there and continue espousing these beliefs and, and, and riling people up for whatever reason. Um, but I thought it was so important because Jane McAlevey works with unions on union busting. Mm -hmm. These are strategies that have been used for hundreds of years, not yeah. decades, hundreds of years to break apart revolutions, to break apart the left, to put instigators in, to pay off folks, to whatever it is. But- Solidarity, and that's why we always say solidarity with labor, because it's very clear when you align yourself with labor that you're there for working people. And I think what's very missing from this conversation with a group of leftists who are, I don't know, praising uh, the guy who sat in Nancy Pelosi's chair and stole her mail and saying, good, he would lead better than what? No. What? That's not a labor left movement. That, that is something else. And no. so I, I, yeah. I wanted to call attention to this in a way that I really didn't want to touch on this stuff anymore. But I think that the stakes are too high that we have to make it extremely clear yeah. to our audience that this is not this is not in good faith anymore. And it is being in there and they're being open about it. Yeah, it's funny because there's a there's some really good clips. Obviously, Elizabeth is one of them. Um, but there's another guy who uh, was, I think, right next to the woman who was shot and um, he's just coming out and he's like, yeah, I'm from Jersey and it was crazy, man. And I'm just angry because they can't do that. Like they work for us. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, how much Jimmy Dore you been watching, bro? I'm not even joking. That is the level of analysis and intellectualism that some people who purport to be on the left are floating to us to digest. It's just, I'm angry. I don't know, elite, like it is, it is so two dimensional and so transparent and actually hella right wing. Sorry. Yeah. And so you see some of the justification from these people don't have justification. They're solidly floating on a lie. And I think it is really important for us as well. And I think, Nomiki, your show and, and, and I hope what I try to do is really bring Criticism, critical thinking, nuance, be able to challenge one another, not um, without getting in a circular firing squad, without doing purity politics, really be able to understand the, the different shades of gray here, um, 
And when we say there are no shades of gray because straight up, these are right-wing extremist fascists. And, and no, this is not the common man, you know, that we have to like yeah. reach out to. That being said, one of the prongs, in my opinion, I think Dave Sirota goes into this for truly neutralizing this fascism is to have a democratic party that has a plan to help Americans. Uh, just a concrete, no uh, means tested, apply for blankety, blankety, blank. No, we need universal assistance. So once again, if it is Medicare for all, if it is a federal jobs program, if it is a full review of all of the police forces around this country to see where the ties to white nationalism has been and fire those people and make sure that they are never rehired once again. You know, like th these are the efforts. It is radical AF to be against racism. Like I said, Antifa, you can't get more radical than that. What do they go against? Nazis. So yay, Andrea. Yay, all of us who can be able to draw this line in the sand, man. Yeah. And that's the thing. The other thing is like, as soon as the left feels solidarity, like grifters will always be like, nope, ah, right. no solidarity. It's like, wait, we're winning though. Like, mm -mm. right. here's why we should all be nihilists. We're all black pilled yes. now and <laughs> just stay on the internet and everyone, everyone's awful. It's like, oh, cool, dude. That's awesome. You yeah. know how much, you know how comfortable you have to be to be able to be nihilistic and black pilled? Like, you know, to have zero, like, ah, no, nah, I'm just not going to, you know, do anything. I don't care. Like, especially if you have a platform to, to, to be fomenting that I think is incredibly irresponsible. And it's, and it's obviously we, we, you know, we talk about this on the show that it's, the platforms are amplifying it. They, they feed off of this hate, they feed off of this opposition. And quite frankly, you know, who wins by dividing the left right now? Who wins when we take on our allies? Who wins when we take on our allies who need us? Yeah. to apply that pressure internally. They need us when they, they put forward things that are with whatever leverage they have. And we need that solidarity to keep winning. So we have more Cori Bushes. I mean, listen, she has her second day, third day in office and she did something <laughs> revolutionary. Yes. I mean, this is a woman in her second race. Her car was repossessed. On the last day of her election after she lost, she came home My and God. it was repossessed. This is My a God. woman we need in office fighting for us. But instead- People who were supposedly on her side put a target on her back. And then two or three days later, literally folks stormed. And those same people didn't call the armed Confederates out who were storming the Capitol as she sat in a bunker in the basement, making phone calls to NPR, to MSNBC, wherever, to tell people this is what's going on. This, this, is, this is not reality. We have to make it extremely clear. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't about a debate between podcast hosts at this point. This is about... <laughs> fascism yeah and enabling fascism or being against fascism yeah and if mitch mcconnell is more against fascism than some podcast hosts on the left you got a freaking problem guys yep you've got a problem but you get your clicks and and i just want to say nomiki like the the natural conclusion of the so-called left playing into the right-wing talking points is that someone's going to get hurt and someone will die. That's right. And I've been thinking about this, and I can't remember who said it, but we've all been thinking of it. I mean, imagine if that mob had run into Ilhan Omar. What if they had run into Cori Bush? What would have happened? Would she still, would, would Ilhan be alive? Right? I mean, all of the violence that Republicans have also participated in, officials, you know, electeds have participated in, that they have real life consequences, you know? So 
where where is uh, where are all these folks going to be when something like that goes down? Right. And 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 I want to be very clear also to our tech companies that it's not enough to just take down folks who incite violence. I want to be very clear because the exception to free speech is when you incite violence. So it's not just that it's not enough when you take down an Alex Jones and a Milo Yiannopoulos. You have to watch these shows carefully and see what they're doing and see what their audience is doing and how they're engaging. Yeah. We understand the value of free speech. We understand platforming folks but if you're not going to give the same algorithm uh, to women of color on the internet doing politics as you do white men who are angry because we know how those feed each other, then you actually have to watch these shows a little bit more carefully and see what they're actually saying because some of this stuff was extremely dangerous rhetoric. Oh my God, yeah. And imagine, Omiki, if like, if the entire sort of milieu of yeah. right-wing edgelord uh, podcast <laughs> bros, um, imagine if they were all black. Just snap your <laughs> fingers and imagine they're all black women. How much would we have surveilled them at this point? Uh, How many videos of theirs would we have taken down from the beginning? If there was a bunch of Cory Bushes that had the amount of clicks and influence, someone who came up from the Black Lives Matter movement, oh my God. Yep. Oh, that would be. Oh, the FBI would be all over that. All oh, the tech companies would be all over that, inciting violence. My God, if all of the pictures of men posing with their guns were just of a uh, uh, killer Mike, yeah. You know, oh, if there were like, if there, you know, right? I mean, if there were millions of thousands of killer Mikes just posing with their guns, oh wow, what would the reaction be? So. Yeah. We have to say that over and over again. And I know, I mean, Facebook banned Trump until the inauguration. So that's, I mean, is there a cookie for what about afterwards? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what I want to know. Francesca Fiorentini, where can we check you out right now? What are you working on? Oh my gosh. The Habituation Room podcast, uh, comedy oh. news every Sunday. Nomiki's been on. Uh, Dorsey, uh, Dorsey, the producer, crushing it, showing the, th- showing the page there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Definitely listen and uh, watch that every Sunday at 6, 9 Eastern. It is the best. I love it. It has the best title. Uh, Francesca, it's always a pleasure. We love you so much. We love what you're doing. We love your courage because you've actually faced a lot of this stuff for years. Let's just be very clear. You've, you've had some back and forth with some of these, these folks um, and it has not been nice. And, you know, we even got some shout outs. Let me just say Big O Lamio uh, says both Francesca and Omiki have both taken <clears throat> so-and-so's completely irrational shit. Thank you for both for holding strong. <laughs> so uh, the, the unnameable, I named the unnameable. I hope that was okay. That's okay. <laughs> we should <laughs> add that to the, the list of things that we don't name when we come on the show. I yes. already broke a rule. I swore a few times today. So you know how bad it is. Is. Oh, geez. Much love to you, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank and you. to everybody uh, who has joined us in the chat and to overtime today, uh, very, very grateful to you. Do we have some super chats that I can shout out? Let's take a look. All right, I'll do one more plug while we wait. Make sure to click that like and subscribe button. You're not subscribed? S- subscribe. Subscribe. <laughs> now, this is the time. Do it. No, seriously. Um, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. And that is where you can get things like our beautiful mugs. Ooh, ah. and we have stickers and bags. Do we have any uh, super chats, Dorsey? I don't know if I'm still waiting around. All right, here we go. Thanks, Dorsey. Uh, like I said, much love to Big Olamio. I hope I'm saying that name right. That was a lot of love. 
guest moments like this, just one of the many reasons I love the Nomi Kia show and it's why we love you. Brother Mucker, thank you so much for the love from overseas. And Ray Lee uh, won't be watching live as I am now. I'm catching up on Majority Report because uh, I was catching up on clickbaity thirst trap, political thirst trap today. Nomi Kia was great, thank you. I loved being on that show. We need a DJ. I think that's what we got to get. I got to get a DJ. Uh, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you so much for the extra love and Paul Perez. And this is Revolution Podcast. Thank you. Can real systemic change really happen within the Democratic Party? The merger between the neoconservatives, the Lincoln Project, and uh, the neoliberals took to, uh, looks to neutralize the left. I think that's their intention. You know, with their power, the power that they have over us is the primary process. And I, I just want to remind folks the DNC vote with, with Tom, between Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, even as they try to split and divide and do all the things that they did in the primary as well, it still came down to just a couple of votes in the second ballot. I think the DNC membership is far more progressive than people really think, and they want a lot more reform. Uh, the issue now, though, is that Biden's the president and he gets to appoint the DNC chair, but I still think that that reform is going to come from within. And when I say reform... I, I covered the DNC extensively and it is, uh, people are angry internally. It doesn't come out publicly as often. Every once in a while it does, but uh, they're angry at the rules. They're angry that there are these committees that oversee the DNC that um, are fully appointed, meaning those people don't have to run around their states getting elected and spend money. So I think folks are really frustrated. Uh, does that mean that we can take over right now? I don't know to be honest, because the chair is going to be an appointee, not somebody who we elect. And at the end of the day, the power of the DNC really comes down to the chair. They can change anything. Kathy Kay, thank you for the love. Antonio Hopson, I just love what you're doing. Uh, keep, keep speaking truth to power. I have been on air all day today. I was also on Fox News today. Go check that out. I went off on a former congressman. Uh, let's see, what else? Al Walski, I'd like to teach the progressives to sing in perfect harmony. Oh, I love that. I love that. And YV map, great convo. And I really enjoyed uh, you on political thirst trap today. Thank you. Progressives need to come together. I had to un unfollow JD and his bad faith attacks. Travis Morris and Mikkel, power respects power. We need to say that every day until we are victorious. Exactly. We need to understand what power we have. That's what I loved about what Jay McAlevey said. Understanding that when you have your community at your back, you understand how powerful you are, whether or not you feel it or not. So think about that. Maybe take this, this away this weekend. Who in your community, which, which, which groups are you a part of that will have your back? Even if you're not a union member, or if you are a union member, even better. Are you part of a church? Are you part of a, a community group? Are you part of DSA? That's what makes us so powerful is we all come with our own communities. And then when we come together, we align with other folks. And that's what capital is scared of. Much, much. Okay. Aaron Lee. Wow. They just keep coming. Thank you for the love. All I can swing for today. You rocked it on clickbaity. I love the folks at clickbaity. JL, thanks for the love. Great guests and topics today. Much appreciated. And as always, as always, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K. Uh, I'm sure you love that shout out. I gave it the top to, to Thomas Paine. Go check out the, the book club that we just started, the TNS book club, it's at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have the first interview with Professor Harvey K on Thomas Paine up. We're going to do a follow-up interview with our book club members once they've read the book because it's in the mail or at your house at this point, um, depending on our postal service, which has been under attack. Uh, but Professor Harvey K is going to join us for some Q&As. 
So you definitely want to go check out the TNS book club at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Mitty Ducks, thanks for working the algorithms as usual. And super, super thanks to our mods, Bob Choke and the Orb and Chuck Diesel. Our new mod, thank you for keeping the chat room troll-free. There are a lot of trolls right now, a lot. So that is a lot of work. And make sure to send us your addresses. We want to send you some swag. All right, guys, have a wonderful weekend. (sighs) I'm out of breath. (laughs) It has been a week. Go get some rest. Hope you can take a walk. Uh, I'm on dry January, so I'm just going to be walking. No wine for me. Be strong. Be well. Solidarity is not a hashtag.